Acts chapter 13, reading verses 48 through 49. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word. I pray that as I give an exposition of it, that You would take these feeble lips and that You would enable them to clearly articulate that which You would have Your people hear. Quicken Your Word to our hearts with faith and help us to glorify You with our responses. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Some years ago, the devotional uh, guide today in the Word had a tongue-in-cheek critique of both Arminianism and Calvinism. And as the story uh, went, there was this group of theologians that had been getting together trying to resolve the tension between predestination and free will. And after a while, tension rose and finally the acrimony got so bad that they just split into two different groups. But one of the guys was having a hard time deciding which group to join and he was hesitating and finally he went to the predestination group and the predestination group asked him, well, who sent you here? And he said, well, nobody sent me here. I just came here on my own free will. He said, free will? You can't be in this group. You belong to the other group. And so he obediently went over to the other group and And they said, well, when did you decide to come over here? And he said, well, I didn't really decide. I was sent here. Sent here, they said. You can't be here unless you come of your own free will. (laughs) And um, both Arminians and Calvinists would say that really does not uh, adequately present their positions. But frequently people will buy into an either-or dilemma. It's a fallacy because many times life is much more complicated than that. But there are many either-or dilemmas that people set up in theology. One of them is to say that uh, if God is sovereign, man cannot be responsible. You know, it's either a sovereignty or it's responsibility. You've got to pick one or the other. And the Scripture absolutely does not agree with that. Another dilemma that people sometimes set up is to say either men have a free will or they are robots. And the Scripture, again, does not agree with that. Certainly, this passage does not. Because in the first part of verse 48, you've got the joyful, free response to the gospel on the part of these Gentiles. And then in the second part of that verse, it explains why they could freely and joyfully embrace the gospels because God had predestined them to believe. It does not separate the two at all. Now, Arminians love the first half of this verse, but uh, boy, they go to all kinds of lengths trying to explain away the second part of this verse. And since there is so much controversy over the second part, I'm going to deal with that half first, then we'll go to the first part of verse 48. Second sentence of verse 48 says, And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And I just want to analyze that sentence word by word. First of all, I want you to notice the word appointed. The Greek word uh, that is used is tasso and It means to determine, to appoint, to choose, or to ordain. It's really a synonym for to predestine. 
And so this word is saying that God is the one who chooses who will be saved and who will not be saved. Uh, only a certain number are chosen, ordained, appointed, however you want to translate that. Only a certain number are appointed to eternal life. Now, some people bristle at that and they think that is just not fair. But you know what would really be fair would be for everyone to be left in their sin and rebellion and going to hell, just like Paul left the Jews here in verse 46 in their sin and rebellion. Paul said, since you rejected it, and that's what we would all do apart from God's grace, since you rejected it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, God didn't have to turn to the Gentiles. They weren't worthy of eternal life either. Nobody is, right? Uh, and the fact that God has chosen anyone to eternal life is an absolute gift of His mercy. It's just a marvelous, marvelous pri privilege. We're chosen. Why in the world would God choose any one of us to salvation? That's really the appropriate question. Now, the second thing I want you to notice about that word is that in the Greek, it is in the passive voice. There are different voices in the Greek, unlike English, and this is in the passive voice. This means that we are acted upon. God is the active agent. We are the passive agent. We are the recipients. We are not the movers of God's election. And that fact reinforces the fact uh, that God has a free choice in this matter. Now, we like to point to our free choice, but we need to realize God has a free choice. And this is highlighting that fact. God is the active agent. We are the passive. The third interesting thing to note about that word appointed is that it is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense means that there was an action, in this case, a decision that happened in the past with a abiding result in the present. Something way in the past that's decided, abiding uh, result in the present. And it's because of the perfect tense that I say this is a synonym for to predestine. Now, what's extremely unusual about this verse, and we're going to be looking at that in a moment, is that every elect person who was alive at that moment in that city um, came to Christ all at the same time. And we'll look at why that was the case a little bit later on. But this means that the Jews who rejected it were not chosen or appointed unto eternal life. Now, you couple that with verse 46, and it indicates there were some who were rejected by God. There were others who were chosen by God. Now, that is as bold and as absolute a statement of the doctrine of predestination as you can get. And it bothers some people. They say, man, that's just not fair. You can't do that. And so I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 9, where Paul deals with the question of predestination not being fair. <clears throat> Arminianism did not start in the uh, uh, time of the Reformation. It didn't start with Arminius. Uh, it was alive and well in the first century. In fact, any place where human flesh is present, you're going to have Arminianism. Because that's all Arminianism is. It's the revolt of human flesh against God's sovereignty. And so let's look at Romans 9, beginning at verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect... For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now, Paul is pointing out or opposing the objection that some people might have that since there are a majority of Israelites who did not believe, God is not sovereign. They say God has made a promise of salvation to Israel. Some have not believed in the gospel. 
Therefore, God must be thwarted in his desires. He could not be sovereign. And Paul absolutely resists that notion and says no will can, re, uh, can thwart God's plan. There's no way that can happen. The reason that some people are not believing, he says, is because not all of Israel are truly Israel. There is a chosen elect within Israel who are the true Israel of the God. The others bear the name, but they're like the chaff that's around the kernel. And so uh, he says, God's purpose, his election will always stand. That's going to be his theme. Now look at verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. And so it's God's promise, not our desire, that makes children elect or non-elect. And so we have to look at his promises. What do his promises say? Look at verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Now, if you insert foreknowledge of people's works into the equation, as Arminius tried to do in this and other places, you completely overturn and destroy Paul's equation. Because Paul here is excluding anything that man does. It's an unconditional election. Now, what we mean by unconditional election is God doesn't see any conditions that men are meeting so that he can then elect them. Conditions in man are excluded altogether is, is what's going on here. He says uh, there are two brothers here, Esau and Jacob. One was elect, the other was reprobate. And he says it was entirely outside the question of whether they had done good or evil. Okay, verse 12. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Paul will not agree with those who say, man, if, if God sends some people to hell and others without their choice, he's unrighteous. And he says, certainly not. That is not the question. He has the right to reject whom he wants and he has the right to save whom he wants. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So you see, it's God's choice, not man's choice that is emphasized. He is totally sovereign in everything that he chooses. Verse 16, so then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now you can see that man's free will, if he had one, <laughs> is completely excluded by this verse. This verse says, God does not base our election upon our will, upon our willingness. Now that is as bold a contradiction as you can get to the Arminian idea that God looked down the corridors of time to see who would exercise their will and then He elected them based on that foreknowledge. He says, no, man's will is completely excluded from the equation here. Verse 17 for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Wow. I mean, this is tough stuff that Paul is giving here. Paul is, in effect, 
completely doing away with the silly notion that some people have that God is wringing His hands and just hoping people will come to faith and that Pharaoh maybe will repent somehow because he's aching that this guy will somehow come to faith. He's saying, no, I raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose that my wrath might be displayed in him. This was my purpose. I was not defeated in any way. This means that even rebels have a purpose in God's plan. Proverbs 16, verse 4 says, The Lord has made all for Himself. Yes, even the wicked for the day of judgment. Now, Paul's conclusion is given in verse 18. Therefore, He has mercy on whom He wills, and whom He wills, He hardens. Election is God's choice, not ours. Now, this means that John R. Rice's ridiculous notion that election is sort of patterned after democracy. God casts a vote in favor of you and Satan casts a vote against you and you cast the deciding vote is ridiculous. Okay, this is all God's choice. Our will is completely removed from the equation of election. In verse 19, Paul anticipates that the reader is again going to think this is not fair Now, you might think that Paul would try to soften the doctrine a little bit to make it somewhat appealing to people's desires. Come on, Paul, you're losing your audience here. But he refuses to do that. He even is more bold. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? In effect, Paul anticipates the Arminian objection that if God is sovereign, then men could not be responsible. You can't punish us, God. We're just robots. If that's the case, you can't punish us for what we're doing. We can't help it. And Paul does not even consider that argument to be worthy to debate with. Now, you'd think he'd want to take on that debate, but instead he says such an objection is totally inappropriate for a mere creature to bring before the Almighty God. He says, in effect, how dare you talk to God in that way? Look at verses 20 and following. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And I want you to notice, he says, from the same lump. It's not that some are better than others. That's why they became Christians. And by the way, Arminius' theology mandates that that be the case. Arminius assumes that there are some people who are bad lumps of clay. They're resisting God. They refuse to put their faith in the Lord. And others are good lumps of clay. In fact, there's many Arminians who will use this illustration. Some people are like clay, which the sun bakes and hardens. Other people are like wax, which the same sun makes soft, right? So what's the implication? There's some people who are better. They're good. And so the same sun comes to both, but these people, they respond appropriately. And Paul says, no way, no way. They come from exactly the same lump of clay. And then God, he says, takes part of that lump and he makes it into a vessel that is for honor and goes to heaven. And he takes from the same lump another vessel that is for dishonor and that is going to be destined to go to hell. Okay, that's pretty bold, tough stuff. I'm just reporting what Paul is saying. Okay, and we cannot make the scriptures say something less than what God intended them to say. Uh, Verse 22 shows that it glorified God to raise up such people for wrath. This was his purpose. 
Verse 22, what if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So, that is the doctrine of God's predestination. It's God's choice, not ours. It's His will, not ours. And for those who insist that we've got to defend man's free will, we need to ask them, well, what about God's free will? Does not God have the right to choose who will be part of His bride? Now, the bride does have a choice, and we're going to get to that in a moment. That's point number two. Uh, But what I am wanting to stress here is God's choice is not dependent upon the bride's choice. God's choice precedes the bride's choice. Now, the bride's choice is a glorious choice. We're going to look at that in a moment. But it would be foolishness to think that a beggar, harlot girl on the street whom God has chosen to be his bride had the right to expect that God owed it to her to be her husband. Okay? Uh, the bride is utterly, utterly unworthy to even expect to have God to choose her to be his bride. Jerome Zanchius wrote a remarkable treatise on the absolute predestination of God. And in the preface, he said, When I consider the absolute independency of God and the necessary total dependence of all created things on him, their first cause, I cannot help standing astonished at the pride of impotent, degenerate man who is so prone to consider himself as being possessed of sovereign freedom and invested with a power of self-salvation, able, he he imagines, to counteract the designs of infinite wisdom and to defeat the agency of omnipotence itself. Ye shall be as gods, said the tempter to Eve in paradise, and ye are as gods, says the same tempter now to her apostate sons. The Scripture doctrine of predetermination lays the axe to the very root of this potent delusion. And I'd strongly recommend you read that treatise by uh, uh, Jerome Zanchius. Or read the book by A.W. Pink, uh, The Sovereignty of God. This is a doctrine that humbles the pride of man and it exalts and glorifies the attributes of, of the Lord. And if you will submit your heart to God's absolute predestination... It'll demonstrate you have grace, number one. But you're going to begin to find in terms of your worldview, everything else begins to fall into place. All of the other doctrines fall into place if you will uh, admit to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. It's one of the reasons why Charles Spurgeon loved this doctrine. He preached on it over and over again. In fact, he preached on it repeatedly in order to evangelize people. He said, this is the one doctrine that separates between the sheep and the goats. It separates between the people who are false tares and true wheat. Here's what he said at one time, at one point. He said, I believe the man who is not willing to submit to the electing love and sovereign grace of God has great reason to question whether he is a Christian at all. For the spirit that kicks against that is the spirit of the unhumbled, unrenewed heart. Now, I do want to say that there are Arminians who are Arminians because they don't know any better. Okay? And they really do uh, love the Lord. They really are believers. But as J.I. Packer says, 
these Arminians are Calvinists on their knees. And it's a remarkable thing. I've known many Arminians who are truly believers. They get on their knees before the Lord. They're Calvinists. And I'm thinking to myself, now, when they're, when they're going to debate with me afterwards, they're going to reverse everything. But when they're on their knees, they truly are Calvinists. And so I, I really do think that this is something that we need to teach to other people and bless them with this theology. Get them into the pure gospel, uh, which is what Calvinism really is. Now, let me make one more comment on Romans 9 before we get back to Acts 13. In verse 29, Paul says that we should be focusing on the fact that apart from predestination, every one of us is going to be in hell. Okay? And justly so. He says, And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So the remarkable thing, as Spurgeon said, is not that Esau was rejected and hated. The remarkable thing is that Jacob was chosen and loved. How in the world could God love Jacob? It wasn't that he was any better. He was a deceitful, manipulative man. How could he love me? You know, the more we understand of our hearts, the more we're going to stand in awe and love and reverence and, 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 and just amazement that God would choose any of us. And so the word appointed shows us the fact of predestination. The next words in Acts 13, if you flip back there, Acts 13, 48, shows the nature of predestination. It says that these were appointed to eternal life. Now, some Arminians have tried to argue that predestination um, is uh, simply predestination to service, not to life. And the way that they have argued this is they have said there's only one elect person. That's Jesus. And in the future, there are going to be many people who will be united to Jesus, which makes them part of the elect. But uh, it's only because Jesus is the elect. And any time that election is dealing with individuals, it's only dealing with service. It's not dealing with eternal life. Um, this scripture absolutely contradicts that. <clears throat> uh, this uh, indicates that there is a specific number of people who were appointed to everlasting life. This is in heaven. So clearly, predestination is in terms of the doctrine of salvation. I don't think there's any escaping of that. It doesn't say that Jesus is the elect. It says individuals are. Now, the next word indicates that belief flows out of God's decree, not vice versa. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. doesn't say as many as have believed were appointed to eternal life. doesn't even say as many as God foresaw would believe God appointed to eternal life. That's putting it completely backwards. It says as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. It's not the belief that moves God to appoint. It's the appointment which results in belief. Can you see that? Now, Arminians believe the exact opposite. They believe our faith is the cause of ordination. Our faith moves God to appoint us. But verse 48, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believe. Now, I'm spending a lot of time on this because every one of us has a flesh, sinful nature, and our flesh is opposed to this doctrine. It's very important that we understand it so that we can enter into the joy that this passage also speaks about. Now, let's go back to the words as many. Verse 48, as many as had been appointed to eternal life uh, believed. Now, two things to notice here. First of all, all of the elect who were in the city at that time believed 
at the same time, during that short period that Paul was in his ministry. That's a very unusual thing. It's happened a few other times, but very unusual. If you turn to chapter 18, you'll see the regular way in which Paul, uh, that God ministered. Uh, Chapter 18, Paul's preaching in Corinth. And in verse 8, it says, Many Corinthians believed and were baptized. Paul's work's not done, though. Look at verses 9 through 10. Now, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Those are his predestined ones, his elect ones. I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So that meant pagans could not do a thing to Paul until God's purpose of every elect person who was supposed to come through Paul's ministry came to faith. Then he moved on. Now, there were still many others in Corinth who came to Christ through other people um, uh, down the road. But uh, he, he was saying here that, that uh, 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 Paul was going to have to be trouble-free and able to preach until every person that was predestined to come to Christ through his ministry had come to Christ. Um, in Acts 13, every elect person comes to Christ suddenly. And so the only point I wanted to make from that is the place, the manner, and the speed with which people come to Christ is all planned out by God. Nothing is left to chance. The second thing to notice is that God has a certain number of elect and not one person more or one person less than that can be saved. It says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. All those appointed believed. Nobody but those appointed could believe. The elect is always a specific number. Romans 11 verse 7 says, The elect have obtained it, but the rest were blinded. John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 39 says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. In Revelation chapter 7, it speaks of exactly 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes of Israel who would come to Christ prior to them being scattered among the Gentiles. So whatever your eschatology, forget about that. Just notice 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if all of these people have free will and their free will could thwart God, how in the world could you get exactly 12,000 from each of those tribes? Statistically, it's absolutely impossible. But if God chose them and their reception of salvation is because God has moved their hearts, God can pick any arbitrary number he wants. And 12,000 was exactly the number that he wanted from each of the tribes of Israel. This is why the Westminster Confession of Faith said, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others are foreordained to everlasting death. These angels and men thus predestined and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. This is why Jesus said in John 17, You have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. You see that? Jesus cannot give life to one person more or one person less than those that the Father has given to him. That's why we believe in limited atonement. 
His atonement, his purpose for his death was specifically, according to this verse, limited to those giving life to those whom the Father had given to him. Okay, he goes on. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours and all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Not a single one can be lost. Not a single additional person can be added to the number of the elect. Not a single person can be lost from the number of the elect. Now, this means he did not die for some indiscriminate mass of humanity out there. Uh, the openness of God theology says God cannot foreknow the future. So he's got, he's got his son who's coming to Christ and God is choosing whoever in the future happens, and he doesn't know who it's going to be, but whoever in the future happens to believe in Christ. This means that his election is just some non-discriminate blur out there. Well, this contradicts that. This says God elected you specifically. He had you in mind. Jesus had you in mind when he died for you. This means you are special to him. You're not just a statistic. You're not just lost out there. He had you in mind. You were special. And so this verse speaks of a certainty, an absolute certainty in salvation. The word appointed or ordained we saw was in the perfect tense. It shows that our salvation was determined from eternity past. And far from making Paul nervous or upset, every epistle that Paul writes, he deals with this predestination and it makes his heart glow. It makes him glory. It makes him thankful to God in Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Uh, Paul absolutely glories in the predestination of the Lord. And he blesses God. And he says it came from God's love, in love having predestined us. In Romans 11, it makes Paul cry out in amazement, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. It is a plan that ought to make us rejoice. So the first certainty we see concerning our salvation is it was determined from eternity past. The second certainty we have is that it is determined to eternity future. Because it says we were appointed to eternal life, not to temporary life but eternal life, not to salvation that we can lose. And some Arminians say you can lose your salvation, gain it again, lose it again, gain it again. No, it is to a life that never ends. God's plan does not change. We don't have to pick daisies and say He loves me, He loves me not, He loves me. We don't have to be in doubt about that. We can know with an absolute certainty what He is predestined to the future. He is determined to the uh, time, you know, eternity to come. Is this not a doctrine we can rejoice in? We can be glad over. It's a cool doctrine. Now, the third thing that makes this salvation absolutely certain is that the predestination was not based on our frail will as it was in Arminius' plan. I know I'm repeating myself, but I want this to be crystal clear. Arminius said, God looked down the corridors of time and he was trying to figure out who is going to believe and persevere because he said, if you don't persevere, you lose your salvation. Who's going to believe and persevere? Okay, that one's going to believe and persevere, so I'm going to choose him. That one believed, but later he lost his salvation. Okay, I won't, I won't choose him. This one believed and persevered for a while, and then lost his salvation, believed again. Now he's persevered. Okay, I'll choose him. 
that's the way Arminius saw that. And you can see that would totally destroy any confidence in our salvation. On that theology, everything rests on our faith and our perseverance, not on his ordination. You can see why it would rob people of their confidence. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible is God's election, predestination, whichever word you want to use, based upon our will. Now, Arminians are quick to turn to Romans 8, 28 through 30, but Romans 8, 28 through 30 does not even remotely talk about that. They say, well, it says he foreknew, you know, that we would believe and he sees our faith. It doesn't say that. They have to insert our faith, our will into verse 29, but it doesn't occur in that passage. It doesn't occur till significantly later, and it's a product of all God has done. The golden chain of God's salvation only deals with what God has done, not with what we have done. There is not a speck of man in our salvation, or we could take some glory in it. As Jonah says, salvation is of the Lord. Spurgeon said, I do not believe that there ever would have been a man delivered from this present evil world if it had not been according to the will, the purpose, the predestination of God. It needs a mighty tug to get a man away from the world. It is a miracle for a man to live in the world and yet not be of it. I am sure it would never have been wrought if it had not been according to the will of God our Father. And so God's election is the foundation of our salvation. Without it, we have nothing. As Spurgeon said, it's God's will that is highlighted. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. John 1.13 Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Ephesians 1.5 tells us we are predestined according to the good pleasure of His will. Verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. To make anything in our salvation dependent upon our will rather than 100% upon God's will is to destroy salvation. Think of it this way. If God built the bridge of salvation over the Grand Canyon, and he built 98% of it, but he tells us, okay, now you've got to build 2% of this bridge. I'm not requiring much of you. I'm doing most of the salvation. Without me, you couldn't be saved. I've given you 90%. Don't complain, man. You've got only 2% of this bridge to build. But if we've got to build that out of the rotten timbers of our carnal flesh, which is the only thing our will can spring from, what have we got? We've got a rotten bridge which will fall to the bottom of that Grand Canyon. It will not sustain our weight. Now, I'm not saying that we don't exercise our wills. Of course we do. That's point number two. You know, we're going to walk over that bridge. Praise God. After we have been changed and our hearts have been renewed, we're going to walk. But it's only because of God's sovereign grace that we can walk. Let's go to point number two. Very important. If it's not present, there is no salvation because wherever point one is um, uh, present, point two will follow. And if you don't have point two, it's an evidence you don't have point one. Okay, that's the way you should look at it. Now, I want you to notice that the text does not say that the elect were dragged into the king, king, kingdom against their will. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say they're dragged into the kingdom, kicking and screaming whether they want to be saved or not. We're going to have them saved. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say they're robots. It says that they believed. Every one of them believed. God didn't believe for them. They believed. How in the world does that happen? Well, Acts 16, 
Uh, Luke tells us about Lydia as one example. In verse 14 of Acts 16, it says, The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. That's the only way it can happen. Is if God changes our hearts and suddenly, where we didn't notice our sins before, suddenly we're overwhelmed with our sins. Whereas before our will was disposed to be against God, suddenly our wills are disposed to be for Him. It's not forced. We want God now. He changes our will so that it will embrace Him. In fact, if you look at pages 2 and 3 of your handout, page 2 shows that we are not born again when we believe, but we believe when we are born again. Arminians say the opposite. They say we get born again because we believe. No, you would never be able to believe if you hadn't been born again. God has to regenerate the heart. He then calls us. We respond with faith. And there are many other scriptures I could have included in there. For example, John 3, 3 says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You don't have any spiritual sight until you're born again. Jeremiah 24, 7, then I will give them a heart to know me. And you can look at some of the other examples on page two. But look at page three. Notice that God freely offers salvation to all who will come. We believe in the free offer of salvation. Uh, all who will come. John 6, verse 35. Well, the problem is Jesus has just finished saying no one can come to me. Okay, that's the doctrine of total depravity, the doctrine of total inability. Now, the solution is given in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Okay, God enables us to respond where in ourselves we would be utterly unable to respond. God draws our hearts to him. Next one that's on there. Life is offered to those who believe. But John 12 says they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and turn again and I should heal them. They could not believe. The solution is God gives them faith. Is that not a gracious doctrine? He provides what we could not provide in ourselves. And if you look through the chart, you'll see that even though salvation is freely offered, men don't want to come. They cannot come. And they cannot receive it until God does a work in their lives. This is why Romans 3.11 says, There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. None. doesn't say not very many. None. That's why Romans 8.7 says, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Now that means that this choice of men and women to believe the gospel is a product of God's grace. Now that doesn't make it any less the actual decision of the man and the woman. Okay, it is an act of their minds and of their wills they believed. Secondly, I want you to notice that Luke sees the sovereignty of God and salvation as being totally consistent with the freedom and joy and liberty that Arminians wish we could have. They wish we could have it apart from grace. He says we can only have it with grace. But they wish we have it. When we once submit to God's total sovereignty, ironically, we find ourselves ushered into joys indescribable and full of glory. The first part of verse 48 says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. First, they were glad. What a contrast to the miserable feelings of the Jews in verse 45. Look at verse 45. When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. That's a kind of bondage, isn't it? You've seen people who are so filled with envy and bitterness and anger and frustration, they can't have any joy. They want it, 
but they can't have it. They're slaves. And so it says they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. So here you've got a tremendous contrast. The negative emotions of those who claim to have free will and want to be independent uh, from God versus the positive emotions of those who deny their free will and submit themselves to their sovereign Lord. And this is the way it always is in life. D. James Kennedy said, the reason people today are opposed to election is because they will, ha- they will have God to be anything but God. He can be a cosmic psychiatrist, a helpful shepherd, a leader, a teacher, anything at all, only not God, for a very simple reason. They want to be God themselves. But you know what? We make lousy gods, don't we? <laughs> Ever since Adam and Eve tried, they've made a, we've made a big mess of it. Anytime we try to gain control of life, we want to be in control when God's the one who's really in control, we find ourselves in absolute misery. And so the irony is that those, even amongst believers, who are trying to follow Satan's temptation to Eve, that we uh, think and act and emote independently from God, find ourselves with fear and bondage and futile thinking. You see, we've got to recognize that that idol of free will must fall down before the Ark of the Covenant. It must fall down and declare itself to be a futile, powerless idol. We, we just abandon it and say, Lord, I'm not resting on my free will. I'm resting on Your sovereign grace. You're the only one who can take me through. I know my, my free will will fail me. And so it's an idol that needs to be destroyed. But those who acknowledge themselves to be slaves of Jesus, find themselves ironically elevated to the status of sons and daughters. He gives us liberty. He gives us freedom. He gives us joy. He gives us everything we need as princes and and princesses of the great high priest. You know, every one of the apostles, even though Jesus gave them permission to call themselves sons and daughters, every one of them addresses the, the uh, the people they're writing to as slaves is the literal word. Servants of the Most High. Slaves. And yet, you read through the epistle, you realize they've got all of the attributes, all of the things of sons and daughters of God. Those two are totally compatible. When we are slaves to God, we enter into the liberties of sonship. And so, verse 48 says that they glorified the word of the Lord. Now, our tendency is to want to glorify ourselves. And it takes a powerful work of God's grace to change that around so we're no longer glorifying ourselves. We're glorifying God's Word. Now, last week we mentioned there's four things that have to be in place to glorify God's Word. You've got to believe it. You've got to obey it. You've got to believe that it's got the power that it says that it has. And thirdly, you've got to let the Word of God be the measure and the standard of all truth claims. It's the judge of all of life. Satan's temptation to think independently initially feels good. But one of the great purposes of the doctrine of predestination is to humble the pride of man and exalt his kingship. And ultimately, that is the difference between the Reformed faith and Arminianism. The former is a God-centered religion. The latter is a man-centered religion. Let me close by reading from the introduction to A.W. Pink's book, The Sovereignty of God. He said, The Scriptures affirm that God is the Almighty, that His will is irreversible, that He is absolute sovereign in every realm of all His vast dominions, and surely it must be so. Only two alternatives are possible. God must either rule or be ruled, sway or be swayed, 
accomplish his own will, or be thwarted by his creatures, accepting the fact that he is the Most High, the only potentate and King of kings, vested with perfect wisdom and illimitable power, and the conclusion is irresistible that he must be God in fact as well as in name. And this morning, I want to urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to not resist this doctrine, but to find joy in it, find security in it, find freedom and liberty in it. Uh, to be able to say with the hymn writer, I sought the Lord. And we never do- deny that, right? I sought the Lord and afterward I knew He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. Thou didst reach forth Thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. T'was not so much that I on Thee took hold as Thou, dear Lord, on me. I find, I walk, I love, but oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to Thee. For Thou wert long beforehand with my soul. Always Thou lovest me. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your predestined plan. That we are not just a a blob of individuals that uh, You did not really uh, care for individually, but from eternity past, You set us individually like a signet on Your hand. You wrote us on Your hand. Father, You carry us in Your hand. And that there is none who can pluck us out of Your hand. Thank You for the security that we have in the fact that salvation is of the Lord. That we were secure in Your plan from eternity past. We are secure in Christ having accomplished that and the Spirit applying it in our lives. And that You will keep it secure for all of eternity. We bless You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the awesome work of Your salvation. Forgive us for those times when our flesh has bucked against this sovereignty. And help us with all of our heart to embrace it to declare ourselves to be bond slaves, loving bond slaves. Yes, Lord, we bow our necks to the ground and say, put your foot upon our necks. We want to be your vassals. And yet we thank you that when we once become vassals, you raise us to the status of sons and daughters. Blessed be your name forever and ever. What an amazing thing it is to consider your salvation. So I pray, Father, that this, your people, would be strengthened in this truth and in our service to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.